Hey everybody, my name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm so sorry that I didn't get a chance to tease the show. I was uh, in another class. I was taking a class today, so I didn't get a chance to tease the show at all. And usually I'll do a tease here on TikTok, so we'll see how things go tonight. And hello everybody on Facebook, hello everybody on, on YouTube, hello everybody at Twitch, hello everybody on Twitter, and everybody else that's listening in. I appreciate you guys. Uh, this is California Haunts Radio. And I don't know what's going on here. I keep getting buttons. What is that? What's this? Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Charlotte. Uh, this is California Haunts Radio. It is Sunday reading day. And what today is, is I read from a paranormal themed book. And this week, again, we're at part five, uh, day five reading day of the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden, which is an interesting book. And I think today we're going to get into the actual murders. And a quick warning is this, this is a PG-13 rated R channel. So if uh, you find something offensive that I'm reading out of this book, because there are descriptions of, of, of her trying to poison people and, and, and the murder itself, um, please move on. Uh, there, you know, there's other places, you, you, uh, other people online that you can talk to, okay? Yeah, or watch, rather, because, uh, you know, like I said, the PG-13 channel, PG-13, our channel. I don't want to get turned into the, the uh, internet police for anybody, you know, whether I'm on TikTok or anywhere else. Um, I'm also the owner, uh, this is a California Hunts radio show. I'm also the owner of the uh, the team, our actual paranormal team, and we're 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you think you have a paranormal need, uh, we can get to you. It might take us a couple of days. California is this huge state, but uh, we will get to you eventually, you know, within one or two days. And in the meantime, one of our psychics or mediums can call you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on in your house or business. And in most cases, they can settle the, the activity down until we can get out there. So that's one of the pluses. Anyway, I want to well, again, I want to welcome everybody. Uh, TikTok, I'm going to tell you right now, um, I have old eyes. You're on my uh, iPhone. I cannot see your comments, but I appreciate each and every comment. Uh, someday when I get a producer, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to build up to that 3,000 uh, followers so that I can, like, put you up on my, uh, on my laptop so I can see you guys. Unfortunately, I can't. I do have a live goal today of 50 uh, llamas. That's only that live goal, goal is only there to help me. You know, I have to pay bills like everybody else and pay my internet bills and things like that. And that's how I pay is I, is I have to do it through donations. I, I do this full time. And yeah, I have to do it through donations, unfortunately. And uh, it's up to you. You don't have to. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to hold a gun to anybody's head to uh, get donations or anything like that. But uh, it would help. It would help a little bit. Also, I'm trying to hit 4,000 likes. So if you like what you see and hear tonight and you uh, want to either share me, you can share me to somebody else, because we're still trying to get people to, people to follow as well. Uh, say, you know, this goes for everybody. Double tap that screen for me over there on TikTok. I'm trying to hit 4,000 likes tonight. So if you could do that, I'd really appreciate it. Um, same thing with Facebook and YouTube. Uh, hit those like buttons, those thumbs up, those happy faces, those smiley faces because it helps me to get up higher in the, in the FYP and get distributed more. Okay, that being said, um, if you're over on Facebook and you haven't done so already and you like what you hear tonight, please be sure to hit that follow button. Same thing over YouTube, hit that subscribe button. We're trying to hit our 1,000 um, subscriber goal on YouTube uh, by the end of December. Be a nice little way to start the new year. And uh, TikTok, of course, you know, if, if you like what you hear and you haven't done so already and you want to follow, feel free to follow because we don't only read 
paranormal theme book. Uh, you know, the, the, I do the show six days a week, and it's all different types of paranormal topics from UFOs, UAPs, alien abductions, cryptids like Bigfoot and things like that, all the way through psychic readings and, and things like that. And I'm going to be doing a lot more with TikTok. It's coming. Karen Clark, uh, one of our uh, lead field psychics, is going to be working with me with tarot cards. We're, we're going to be doing all kinds of stuff. We're going to do readings on TikTok. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to tell ghost stories. Uh, we visit a lot of haunted places, so we're going to share that with you and the results that we got in those haunted places. So there's a lot going on and into the buildup for TikTok, okay? All right, so today is Sunday reading day, and I, I read from a paranormal theme book every Sunday. I read for an hour. And what makes it interesting is that sometimes it's a fantasy and sometimes it's a true story. This is a true story. If you know about Lizzie Borden, you know, and you've heard the song, you know, gave her mother, gave her mother 40 wax when she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. It's a true, it's based on a true story. Rebecca F. Pittman, the writer of this, does a lot of research in her stories and that she writes. So there's a lot of detail in here that you probably have never heard before about what went down in the Borden household leading, leading up to and during the murders themselves, the axe murders themselves. Again, I cannot I cannot see your comments. I can even see your comments over on, on my computer screen, okay? But uh, if you like, like I said, I'm looking for 4,000 likes, so double tap that screen. Please double tap that screen, you know, during this, if you like what you hear. And do share it, do share it. And, do, and again, if you like it, follow. Hit that follow button. Okay, because I'm always looking for more followers. All right, I'm going to bring my tablet up here, and then we're going to start reading. I'm going to start reading. So let me get my tablet up. Like everything else, I not only have old eyes, I have an old tablet. So bear with me. <laughs> and again, PG-13, rated our channel. If you guys are uncomfortable with what happens in this, because it is rather graphic. If you guys are uncomfortable with it, don't turn me in. Don't, you know, don't turn me into uh, Facebook. Don't turn me into YouTube. Don't turn me into TikTok. Just move on. You know, there's, there's other places you can go. There's there's Disney guys out there uh, live at the parks. You know, there's there's people that are sleeping uh, that, that camp in their vehicles. There's all kinds of things you can look at on TikTok. Okay, same thing with Facebook and YouTube. So uh, it's really not worth turning me in. And uh, as, as an extra, too, I do have permission from the author and the publisher to read this book live. Okay. And uh, really quick, real quick before we start house cleaning, as they say, this is the last time I'm going to be reading this book until New Year's, because once uh, next week we're going to start reading paranormal dark tales about Christmas, and we're going to be talking about Christmas legends, like 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 what is it, Bird's that's what called, and things like that. So we're going to be talking, we're going to be reading about that next week. So okay, here we go. This is the history and haunting of, of Lizzie Borden. So as it comes up, and welcome everybody. I'm filtered tonight over on TikTok because I was working out in my yard today and I'm all grimy and I didn't want to look grimy on the screen. I barely got in here because like I said, I had that other meeting to do. So why is it coming up? This is not good. Maybe nothing today. We don't know. It's not coming up like it should. It's something about story. There we go. Okay. So let me do this and get this going. Okay. We're okay. Like I said, we'll read for about an hour. And um, it's kind of like they're talking about the murders and they're talking. This is the build up towards the murders where they're. It, 
people they interviewed after the murders, but trying to build up to what led up to the murders and the steps that led up to the murders, okay? So, this gentleman, Sieber, continues. Frederick Eddy made the following statement. John B. Morris came over to his house Wednesday evening, August 3rd, between 7 and 8 o'clock. He drove a horse and top buggy. Said it was a stable team. He came into the house and brought a rattan basket, took out three pears, and laid them on the table. Said he brought them over from, well, from the Borden house. He said Mr. Borden sent him over to see how I was and get the eggs. Said Mr. Borden was coming with him, but he, his wife, and Lizzie were all taken sick last night and he couldn't come. Just a side note for you guys that haven't been keeping up with the story, Lizzie Borden poisoned the milk. And so that night and what he's talking about them being sick is because they were uh, they were throwing up and everything because of the poison. Nobody died, but she did she put poison in the milk. He said he stopped the supper at Mr. Vinicum's who lives a short distance from here. I said to him, after he got his eggs, how about the oxen Mr. Davis himself Dartmouth was said to use? Quote, I am going back and see Mr. Borden, and we think, okay, I think we will make arrangements to get them back over Saturday morning, was the reply. Mr. Moore stayed here 10 or 15 minutes. Since hearing of the murder, it has seemed to me a singular coincidence that he should have come over that night for the eggs. For, had he not, I should have taken the train and gone to Mr. Borden's Thursday morning, which is the day of the murders, arriving at the house about a quarter to 11 or 11. Alice Manley Russell was a woman who had seen her share of disappointment. She was considered a spinster at the age of 42. Though closer to Emma's age, she was friends with both the Morton sisters. That background animal you hear, I have a 18-year-old dog who is senile and he's got some dementia problems and it always affects him at night. So if you hear him howling, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just having one of his dementia spells. There's another dog out there with him. Alice Manley Russell was a woman who had seen her share of disappointment. She was considered a spinster at the age of 42. Though closer to Emma's age, she was friends with both the Borden sisters, Emma's uh, Lizzie's sister, having known them for 11 years by 1892. Alice's father, Frederick W. Russell, died in 1878, leaving Alice and her mother, Judith Manley Russell, on their own. Her mother was a respected nurse and was able to move herself and Alice into the home next to the Bordens at 96 Second Street. One day shared with John B. Chase, a quintessential, quintessential entrepreneur, entrepreneur with talents such as florist, paper hanger, and music teacher. Alice and her mother lived there until October 1890, only eight months before the daylight burglary at the Bordens next door. The house at 96 Second Street had made headlines in 1848 when a tragedy that would give the Borden murders a run for its money occurred there. This is from the Fall River Weekly News, May 4th, 1848. The second wife of Vladimir Burden, Borden, the former Eliza Darling, and aunt to Andrew J. Borden, who resided in the house on Second Street, later occupied by Dr. Kelly and Alice Russell before him, took her two youngest children, six-month-old Holder and three-year-old Elysia, went down the cellar and drowned them in the cistern. Then, stepping behind the chimney, 
cut her own throat with a razor and died almost instantly. Again, if you're uncomfortable with what's in this book, go ahead and leave. Like I said, we're rated R, you know, rated PG-13. I don't want to be cut off. I, I don't want to be, you know, in trouble on Facebook or anywhere else or TikTok. Just move on, okay? I don't want. I don't want to be mad. It's just, it's, you know, we're all adults here. So just move on. There's other places you can visit today, okay? All right. A contemporary diarist noted that Eliza had been considered a little out of her head for a few days past. She was left alone in the house with the children, her maid having stepped out to draw a pail of water. And at that time, Eliza committed the, the deed in a paroxysm of insanity. The only one to be spared from being a victim of her mother's demented act was the couple's eldest child, Maria. Once the tragedy was discovered, it was said that a great excitement prevailed in town. Again, Fall River, this came courtesy of the Fall River Historical Society. It is interesting to note that in both the Borden's murders, one at 92 Second Street and the other next door at 96, a maid was outside to draw a pail of water. While Abby Borden was being murdered in her upstairs guest chamber, her maid, Bridget, was filling a pail to wash the exterior windows. During the trials after the murders of Andrew and Abby Borden, the insanity defense was considered for Lizzie. The connection between her and Eliza Borden looked looked at to see what oh was looked at to see if a strain of madness ran in the Borden family. As Eliza was a darling and only married a Borden, the bloodline theory fizzled out. On the evening of Wednesday, August 3rd, 1892, only 14 and one half hours before the brutal murder of Abby Borden, Lizzie arrived on the doorstep of Alice Russell. The evening was cooler, a mile 66 degrees overcast, with a slight wind coming off the water. The smell of baked goods from the bakery next door wafted on the night breeze. Alice admitted her guest, and they sat down in the small parlor. Alice had moved to the boarding house at 33 Border Street only a little over a year earlier. She testified at trial that her new home was only 300 yards from the Borden house. Her mother had moved to Maple Street and continued working as a nurse. Alex was employed as a bookkeeper. Alice, I said Alex, didn't I? Alice was employed as a bookkeeper for the Leander G. Wilbur and Company clothing store at the corner of South Main and Pleasant Streets, a short walk from her home. Alice noticed the strange hermetic movements of her guest as she poured tea and made polite conversation. Lizzie looked tired, strained and keyed up. According to Alice's Superior Court trial testimony a year later, when she, Lizzie, came in, she said, I have taken your advice and I have written to Marion that I will come. I don't know what came in between. I don't know as this followed that, but I said, I am glad you're going, as I had urged her to go before. Parentheses. Lizzie, obviously at some time, told Alice about her misgivings for going on the trip. In the parentheses. Quote, I said something about her having a good time, and she said, quote, well, I don't know. I feel depressed. I feel as if something was hanging over me that I cannot throw up, and it comes over me at times no matter where I am. And she says, when I was at the table the other day, when I was at Marion, the girls were laughing and talking and having a good time, and this feeling came over me. And one of them spoke and said, Lizzie, why don't you talk? I don't know what was said after that. I don't remember any more conversation about Marion. 
Whether there was or not, I don't remember. Much has been said about this conversation and Lizzie's cryptic statements. Some Borden scholars see her words to Alice as a cry for help. Depression, moods that come over her, and even lapses in memory to where entire conversations are forgotten, are presented. It very well could have been the, the desperate attempt of a woman with murder in her mind, hoping her close friend would see her struggle and help her before she did something irrevocable. Or was it more? A possible precursor to an insanity plea. People suffering from depression, as those who struggle with bipolar disorder, will sometimes act out in rage and claim they have no memory of the event or only a hazy, segmented reality of it. Time in a mental facility, should she be found guilty, was preferable to hanging. As her conversation with Alice continues, she switches gears, perhaps realizing Alice is not picking up the need to rescue her and moves into the father has an enemy mode. Miss Russell continued her retelling of Wednesday night's conversation with Lizzie. I suppose it was followed right on after that. When she spoke, she says, I don't know. Father has so much trouble. Oh, I am a little ahead of the story, she said. Mr. Russell and Mrs. Borden were awfully sick last night. And I said, why? What's the matter? Something they have eaten? She said, we were all sick. All but Maggie. And I said, something you think you have eaten? She said, we don't know. We had some baker's bread and all eight of it, but Maggie, but Maggie, and Maggie wasn't sick. And I said, well, it couldn't have been the bread then. If it had been the baker's bread, I should suppose other people would be sick. And I haven't heard of anybody. And she says, that is so. And she says, sometimes I think our milk might be poisoned. And I said, well, how do you get your milk? How could it be poisoned? And she said, we have the milk come in a can and set it on the step. And we have an empty can. They put out the empty can overnight. And the next morning, when they bring the milk in, they take the empty can. And I said, well, if they put anything in the can, the farmer would see it. And then I said, I asked her what time the milk came, if she knew. She said, I think about four o'clock. And I said, well, it is light at four. I shouldn't think anybody would dare to come then and tap them with cans for fear somebody would see them. And she said, I shouldn't think so either. And she said, they were awfully sick and I wasn't sick. I didn't vomit, but I heard them vomiting and stepped to their door and asked if I could do anything. And they said, no. Parentheses, Attorney Knowlton asked her to repeat it with his words about not vomiting. Alice repeats it, adding Lizzie's words, I wasn't sick enough to vomit, but they were. Nolton is aware Lizzie testified that she vomited also. I think she told me they were better in the morning, and that Mrs. Borden thought that they had been poisoned, and she went over to Dr. Bowen's, said she was going to go over to Dr. Bowen's. Nolton, anything about trouble with tenants or anything of that sort? Alice, she says, I feel afraid sometimes that father has got an enemy, for, she said, he has so much trouble with his men that come to see him. And she told me of a man that came to see him, and she heard him say, well, she didn't hear to see him, but heard her father say, I don't care to let my property for such business. And she said the man answered sneeringly, I shouldn't think you would care what you let your property for. And she said, father was mad and ordered him out of the house. She told me of seeing a man run around the house one night when she went home. 
I had forgotten where, she, where she'd been. She said, and you know, the barn has been broken into twice. And I said, oh, well, you know someone, you know well that was somebody after pigeons. There was nothing in there for them to go after but the pigeons. Well, she says, they had broken into the house in broad daylight with Emma and Maggie and me there. And I said, I never heard of that before. And she said, Father forbade our telling it. So I asked her about it. And she said it was Mrs. Borden's room, what she called her dressing room. She said her things were ransacked, and they took a watch and chain and money and car tickets and something else I can't remember. And there was a nail left in the keyhole. She didn't know who or why that was left. Whether they got in or out with it or what. I asked her if her father did anything about it. And she said he gave it to the police, but they didn't find out anything. And she said father expected that they would catch, catch the thief by the tickets. She remarked, just as if anybody would use those tickets. She said, I feel as if I wanted to sleep with my eyes half open, with one eye open half the time, for fear they will burn the house down over us. She said, I think sometimes, I'm afraid sometimes that somebody will do something to harm him. He is so discourteous to people. Dr. Bowen came over. Mrs. Borden went over, and Father didn't like it because she was going, and she told him she was going, and he says, well, my money shan't pay for it. She went over to Dr. Bowen's, and Dr. Bowen told her, she told him she was afraid they were poisoned. And Dr. Bowen laughed and said, no, there wasn't any poison. And she came back, and Dr. Bowen came over. I was so ashamed the way Father treated Dr. Bowen. I was so mortified. And she said after he had gone, Mrs. Borden said she thought it was too bad for him to treat Dr. Bowen so. And he said he didn't want him coming over there anyway. Lisa left. Lizzie left Alice's house sometime around 9 o'clock and walked the 300 yards to her home along the shadowed sidewalks, stepping stones of light from the street lamps leading her way. Her mood was black. So much had gone wrong, and Alice had not been sympathetic to her tales of doom. At least she had planted the seed of imminent danger, looking in the form of an enemy who wished her father harm. As Lizzie approached the Borden home, she felt like a prisoner ascending the gallows. She was trapped now. The sitting room windows were dark. In fact, all the windows watched her through blackened squares. It was not until she unlocked the front door with her key that she saw the glow from the kerosene lamp sitting on the entry hall table. Abby's thoughtful touch to make sure she could see her way when she arrived. Lizzie knew another one would be burning in the kitchen for Bridget. The murmurings Lizzie heard briefly coming from the room ahead of her suddenly stopped at her entrance. The sitting room was dark, its three occupants conspiring in the soft glow of the kerosene lamp on the hall table. They were in there, talking and plotting, she thought. Spots of color coming to her cheeks. She shut the door and triple locked it, as she always did when she was the last one in at night. Without a word to the three people sitting in the shadows of the sitting room, she climbed the stairs, entered her room, and locked the door, tossing her purse onto her bed. She crouched in the darkness by the fireplace and listened. Lizzie heard Abby enter their bedroom around quarter to ten that night. Fifteen minutes later, John Morse climbed the stairs and entered the guest room. Lizzie boiled with anger. 
They had put him in the guest room, instead of the attic where he usually stayed. Why? To keep an eye on her? She listened for the sound of a closing door coming from that room, but heard none. Several minutes later, she heard him climbing into bed. He was leaving the bedroom door open. At the same time, John Morris was, at the same time John Morris was preparing for bed, opening the shutters and windows in the guest room. In the hopes of catching a breeze. Sorry. Bridget Sullivan was unlocking the back door. It was ten oh five. She saw the lamp that Abby left for her burning brightly on the kitchen table. She'd hung her hat and shawl on the pegs lying the entry wall. The pears Mr. Borden had brought in earlier that morning were still lying on a small table beneath the south kitchen window. The clothes she had ironed earlier that day from one thirty to four thirty hung from a clothes clothes horse near the stove. Didn't know that's what they were called. She would fold them during breakfast tomorrow and leave them on the kitchen table for the family to take to the room. With Miss Emma gone, she had less to do. They had given her time that afternoon to go upstairs to the attic for an hour from 4.30 to 5.30 and get a head start on tomorrow's window washing. The house creaked around her as Bridget stood for a moment in the kitchen, looking over things and going over in her mind the things needed for breakfast the next morning. Moonlight spilled in through the south-facing window. It's ghostly dance with the lace filling across the worn floor. Crossing to the kitchen table, Bridget picked up the lamp and carried it to the sink. Opening the icebox, she poured herself a glass of milk and made her way to her room in the sweltering attic. Chapter 10 Thursday morning August 4th, 1892, the day of the murders. Okay, guys, again, if you are uncomfortable with what I'm reading, please be sure to move on. Don't turn me into the Facebook police. You know, don't turn me into the internet police. I goes for you guys on TikTok, too. There's other things for you guys to, to look at and watch, okay? And if you like what you hear, double tap that screen over there on TikTok. Please double tap that screen. Show me some love over on Facebook. Thursday morning dawned with a layer of humidity, already sending droplets down the windows of the Borden house at 92 Second Street. Bridget Sullivan turned in her bed, her pillowcase damp beneath her neck, and looked at her small bedside clock. Six o'clock, she sighed and pressed her fingertips to her temples. She had a dull headache and sensed the heat that would mount throughout the day. At least she had the afternoon off. This brightened her spirits, as she swung her legs over the bed to rise. Bridget headed down the two flights of stairs to the kitchen. She swirled water into the empty milk glass from her room, watching as the film that coated its edges melted away. Her head throbbed. Not now, she thought. She was meeting her friends downtown this afternoon for a bit of fun. As she began arranging things for breakfast, she glanced at the closed sitting room door. Everything was quiet. She unlocked the wooden door in the back, kitchen entry and left it open. She then unhooked the screen door and brought in the milk can waiting for, waiting for her from the Swansea farm. She poured the milk from the can into clean, manageable bottles and rinsed it out, leaving it to sit on the sink room floor until later. Bridget made two trips to the cellar, first to carry up the wood for the stove and then, to, then returning down the stairs to get a hot or coal. 
<coughs> Perspiration was pebbling her forehead, and she wished she could sit down for a bit. She paused in the cool cellar, bending slightly from the hip, as she tried to manage her aching head. Crossing to the washroom, she splashed cold water on her face from the sink. The brick floor of the building of the room, I'm sorry, lay bare before her. She glanced at the dry sink inside the chimney notch. The washing was done until next Monday. Today would be window washing. She took a deep breath and steadied herself for the day ahead. Picking up the coal, she mounted the steps of the kitchen. Minutes later, at 6.30, Abby Borden entered the kitchen. She told Bridget Mr. Morris was in the house. Did he sleep in the attic, Bridget asked, somewhat surprised. No, he slept in the guest chamber. What have you got for breakfast? Mrs. Borden asked kindly. Bridget noticed some of her employer's color was back in her face, and she appeared to be feeling better. Soup and cold mutton, Bridget replied. Warm it over, but save enough for dinner. Abby turned and opened the sitting room door. John Morris's voice greeted her. He had been the first one up at 6 a.m. and was reading the paper. At 6.45, there was a knock on the screen door. Bridget opened it for the ice man. He hauled in a chunk of ice to the sink room and deposited it into the ice box for her. Normally, Bridget would have paused for a chat, but this morning she was not feeling up to it. Ten minutes later, Andrew Borden came down the back stairs from his bedroom. He set down his, his slop pail and crossed to the sitting room door. A short dressing coat hung there on a nail. He put it on and opened the sitting room door. Bridget saw him place the key to his room on the mantel there and greet John. He returned to the kitchen, picked up his pail, and went out to the backyard. Bridget was at the window beneath the window. Bridget was at the window beneath the window overlooking the yard. She watched as he threw the contents of the slot pail onto the ground beneath the large pear tree. You guys know what that is, right? When we talk about the slot pail, what he's talking about? Okay. Right? Because back in the old days, you know, there were just outhouses, no indoor bathrooms, right? So during the night, boom, slot pail. He then unlocked the barn, entered it, filled the pail with water from the faucet beneath the barn stairs, and returned to the house. He gathered up some rotten pears from the small kitchen table, took them up, and flung them under the barn. Finally, he returned with several that had fallen from the tree overnight and placed them on the table. Crossing the sink, Andrew washed his hands in preparation for breakfast and entered the dining room. Bridget finished her cooking and opened the dining room door. John Morris, Abby, and Andrew were at the table. The maid placed some cold mutton, mutton soup with potatoes, johnny cakes, sugar cakes, molasses cookies, and coffee on the table. She returned to the kitchen and closed the dining room door. Parentheses. The two doors leading from the kitchen to the sitting room and dining room were habitually kept closed. In the Victorian era, the smoke from the stove wood and coal were, and, and coal were dirty the wallpaper and furnishings. The closed door also helped to trap the heat in the kitchen during the summer months. In, in parentheses. Bridget began tidying the kitchen and folding the clothes that hung on a clothes horse from the day before. She separated the clean clothes into two piles. One for Abby and Andrew, and one for Lizzie. The heat in the kitchen felt suffocating as the temperature outside climbed to 66 degrees with high humidity as a chaser. 
Abby rang the bell and asked for more coffee. As Bridget poured their cups, Abby asked her, Do you have anything in particular to do today, Bridget? Bridget swallowed, knowing what was coming next. No, ma'am, she said. Abby, well, I would like you to wash the windows, please. How? Bridget asked, hoping Mr. Borden would want only the inside windows, as it was already hot and humid. Her homes were dashed, but her employer said, inside and out. Bridget walked to the kitchen and placed the coffee pot on the stove. Abby rang the bell in the dining room at 7.30 a.m., signaling Bridget they had finished eating. The three adjourned to the sitting room. Bridget carried in her own plate a white, a white room and sat in Andrew's chair as it was closest to the kitchen door. She pushed his plate aside and placed some Johnny cakes and cold mutton on her own. She could hear the three of them talking in the sitting room next, next door, although their tones were low. Bridget finished her meal and took the dishes into the kitchen. She poured hot water from the kettle into the zinc lined recess, adding soap flakes, and placed the dishes into the, sun, into the sudsy water. She went about cleaning the kitchen, delaying the trip outside to wash the windows. Meanwhile, in the sitting room, Andrew and John talked while Abby popped it out, dusting and straightening. John had asked her first thing how she was feeling, and she answered him, a good deal better. Andrew was still moving rather tenderly, his face weighing and drawn. At 8.30, Abby headed into the front entry, feather duster in hand. John and Andrew spoke for another 15 minutes. At 8.45, John retrieved his hat from the hall tree, just on the other side of the sitting room door, inside the front entry. Andrew walked him to the back door, back, back kitchen door. John testified that he saw Bridget in the kitchen as he and Andrew walked to the back screen door. They stepped outside and talked for a moment. Bridget did not hear what they said. Suddenly, Andrew called out, Come back to dinner, John. Andrew then entered the house and went into the sitting room to get the key to his room. He then cleaned his teeth in the sink, filling a large basin with water. He carried it up the back stairs to his bedroom. Bridget continued to wash dishes. It was only moments after John left that Lizzie suddenly entered the kitchen from the sitting room. What will you have for breakfast, Miss Lizzie? Bridget asked, her wrist buried in the hot water. I'm not very hungry, Lizzie replied. Maybe just some coffee and a cookie. Lizzie took a cup and was pouring herself some coffee at the head of the kitchen table that stood in the center of the room. Bridget's breakfast suddenly rebelled. The nausea that had been fighting that she had been fighting for the past hour took over. She made a dash for the screen door and raced to the back fence, where she placed a hand on the rough boards, bent, bent over and threw up. Andrew came downstairs, adjusting his thin uh, lariat tie. Lizzie was seated in the big overstuffed chair near the south kitchen window. She asked if he would mail a letter for her. She took it. He took it from her but said he may not make it to the post office this morning. The simple statement underscored Lizzie's feelings of betrayal. The signing of the deed was taking up his time that morning. He could not do the small things. Lizzie watched him enter the sitting room and heard the soft clink as he returned his bedroom key to the mantel. The daylight burglary of Abby's things had been over a year ago, yet he insisted on placing the key in her locked room where she could see it. She felt the anger rise in her, along with the panic. Her companion, for most of the past two weeks, has been panicked. 
Andrew sat for a moment in the sitting room, glancing at the Providence Journal until the clock chimed nine. Just then, the front doorbell shrilled near Lizzie's head in the kitchen. She jumped. Lizzie stepped to the open, the open sitting room entrance and watched her father's back as he walked to the front door. Every nerve fiber in her, in her was tingling. They're going through with it. She'd hoped against hope her father would change his mind, that he would remember how much he loved her and head to the kitchen. She jumped. Lizzie stepped stepped to the open sitting room door entrance and walked her father's back and watched her father's back as he walked to the front door. Whoop, I'm sorry. It just skipped a page on me. To how much he loved her, the wonderful times together at the farm. Surely he would not give away her inheritance. But when Andrew opened the door and she saw a young man there holding on a note, her faith came crashing to the ground. I have a note from Mrs. Borden, you said, in a rather nervous voice. It's from a sick friend of hers. Andrew thanked him and pressed a coin into the lad's hand and shut the door. Abby came down, hearing the bell from upstairs. Andrew gave her the note. He came into the kitchen and hung his dressing coat on the nail behind the door and put on his Prince Albert from the dining room. Lizzie was not in the kitchen chair. He thought he heard her in the cellar as he walked down the kitchen walked down the kitchen entry to the back screen door and stepped out. As he was about to descend the steps in the side yard and make his way to the north gate, fronting Second Street, he heard a noise from the backyard. He stepped down the four stairs and looked around the jog by the barn. Bridget was throwing up near the pear tree. He hesitated for a moment, feeling too awkward to assist her, and turned back toward the side steps. A thought stopped him. Now Bridget's sick. Was there really someone trying to poison him? With unsteady steps, he walked toward the gate. Parentheses. Mrs. Churchill testified that she saw Andrew Borden standing by the side steps of his home, near the barn, a little after 9 a.m. on the morning of the murders. She said, He stood at the east side of the back steps, closest to the barn. He was standing at the steps, as if he was coming around the steps. I finally saw him heading toward the street. End of, end of parentheses. Abby stood in the front entry holding a feather duster in her hand. The note shook slightly in her hands. She was alone here with this deception now. Andrew was gone. Bridget would be outside soon, on a mere shot, if Lizzie should go into one of her black moods. She had been nervous from the beginning about the whole thing. Look what happened over at the small house on 4th Street. Andrew had helped her with. Okay. The girls had been furious, alienating themselves from her. Lizzie even stopped calling her mother after all these years. Her relatives would not even visit her at the, at the house, as the tension was so severe and the girls snubbed any of her guests. What was she doing? Lizzie emptied her slop pail in the cellar just as Andrew stepped onto the sidewalk to head downtown. She heard her stepmother's heavy footsteps as she walked to the dining room. Abby entered the kitchen with the feather duster in her hand. She laid the duster on the kitchen work table. She then scooped up the pile of clean clothes Bridget had folded for her and Andrew folded for her and Andrew and headed up to their room. A few minutes later, she came down with fresh towels and pillow shams for the guest room. 
Picking up the feather duster, she entered the dining room, laying the shams and towels on the sofa. She began dusting the bric-a-brac and furnishings of the room. Lizzie came up from the cellar and set her slop pail down in the kitchen. She stepped into the dining room where Abby was dusting, closing the kitchen door behind her. Abby seemed nervous to see her. Bridget entered the back entry. She had been out back sick to her stomach for almost 15 minutes. While the emptying of her breakfast had helped, her head had a pounding feeling and her throat hurt. She stepped back over the sink and finished the last few breakfast dishes. The murmur of two voices came from the dining room. She recognized Abby's, the rising inflection sounding as if she was asking Lizzie a question. Lizzie answered in a civil tone, although Bridget could not make out the words. Are you feeling better? Abby asked Lizzie as they stood awkwardly face to face in the dining room. It's better, thank you, Lizzie said. Abby's nerves were showing as she suddenly blurted out that she had received a note from a sick friend that morning and would be going out. I just need to put the pillow shams on the guest bed. The room is all done, so you needn't worry about it, she said, hoping to win Lizzie's goodwill. On this morning, most of all. It was usually Emma and Lizzie's chore to clean the guest room unless the guest was Abby's, which was not often. With Emma gone, Abby was sure Lizzie would resent cleaning the room. She did, she did not want to provoke her this morning. Lizzie studied her, enjoying the effect she was having on the nervous woman. Abby was not a good liar, and it showed. Her face was effused with color, and she twisted the feather duster handle in her hands. Lizzie played with the idea of tormenting the woman by prolonging her agony with questions such as, Who's sick? Who is picking you up? Instead, she merely walked into the sitting room and sat down, waiting for Abby's next move, and Bridget's. Just as Lizzie sat down, she heard the dining room door open to the kitchen. Bridget entered, with a flurry of clashing dishes. The maid began laying out the clean whiteware on the table, in readiness for dinner. Abby may have spoken to her again about the windows, not realizing that the girl had been out back throwing up. Bridget finished laying the table and crossed the kitchen door. She looked back to see Abby dusting the door frame between the sitting room and dining room. Bridget would never see her alive again. Twenty to thirty minutes later, with a heavy heart, Bridget walked down the cellar steps to get the pail. She would have to wash the windows. Oh, she's going to have to wash the windows. Lizzie now made her move. She grabbed the key from the sitting room mantel, eased open the door to the kitchen, and hurried to the back stairs. Abby had finished her dusting and entered the kitchen from the dining room, just as Lizzie just as Lizzie's skirts disappeared around the corner of the back stairway. Abby returned the feather duster to the closet near the kitchen. Okay, near the kitchen stove where the cleaning things were kept. She took a large blue silk handkerchief from the rag box. It had been Andrew's. She walked into the sitting room, picking up her picking up the clean pillow shams and guest towels. She started for the front stairs and the room John Morris had vacated. Bridget came up from the cellar with the pail. She crossed the closet Abby had just closed and took down a brush for the windows. Lizzie unlocked Andrew and Abby's door with the mantel key. She hurried to the door that separated her room from theirs and slid back to the bolt. 
leaving it touching just enough so someone glancing that way would never notice it was open. Hurriedly, she left the room, relocking the bedroom door to the second floor landing. She reached the bottom of the stairs just as Bridget stepped onto the side steps, carrying her pail and brush. The servant had just gone through the sitting room and dining room, closing the windows. Lizzie had not been there, yet she appears within seconds at the back door. Are you going to wash the windows, Lizzie asked, unnecessarily. Thursday was window washing day, and Bridget was standing there with a pail and brush. Yes, Bridget said. You have no need to lock the screen door. I will be around here. You may lock it if you want to. I will, I'll, I'll get clean water in the barn. Bridget may have hoped Lizzie would take pity on her. Although the, the temperature was around 74 degrees, the humidity was suffocating. Her head was pounding, and with each step she took, her stomach sloshed like a ship listening to the leeward side. Lizzie had to see me out back throwing up, Bridget thought. The girl was right there in the kitchen when I ran out the door. But if she hoped for a reprieve, there was none forthcoming. As Bridget headed to the barn for the pole that attached to the brush, she looked back at the screen door. Lizzie was gone. Chapter 11, Thursday, August 4th, 1892. The stage is set. Okay, again, if you're uncomfortable with anything that I'm reading, please move on. Do not turn me into TikTok police and try and ban, and ban me. Uh, there's, other things you, there's, a, there's other things you can view. We are a rated R, rated PG-13 channel. Same thing for Facebook. Same thing for YouTube. We're moving on here, okay? So here we go. As the August sun beat down on the Spindle City, none of its inhabitants could have known that by the time the city hall bell struck 11 o'clock, an act so brazen and heinous that it would make the national headlines would occur inside a modest home in the heart of the city. Nor did they realize the name Fall River would forever become irrevocably connected to the name of Lizzie Borden and the murders at 92 Second Street. Andrew Borden spent his last two hours on this planet going about his typical routine. The Fall River Herald said he stopped in the, in the Pierre Le Duc's for a moment for, for a morning shave around 9.30 a.m. The police never interviewed the barber excuse me, or verified this. We do have at least 30 minutes of missing time concerning Andrew's whereabouts after Mrs. Churchill saw him standing near the steps by his back door at 9.05 and his arrival at the first place of business around 9.35. He had met up with someone concerning the clandestine transaction about to occur. As we will see, his missing time and one others collide. Andrew Borden walked into the Union Savings Bank at number three Market Square about half past nine Thursday morning, according to Officer Medley. Mr. Borden spoke to Mr. Abram G. Hart, treasurer, and explained to him the reason he had missed the Wednesday meeting of the board of directors was because he had been ill. Mr. Hart said, he remained, but a few minutes, not more than five, and went north from the bank. He was alone when he came and went away from the bank. When he came and went away from the bank. He did not look strong, Mr. Hart said during his preliminary hearing testimony. He was in after that, his first visit nine thirty, but I was out. I know he was in by the word that came to me. John T. Burrell, the cashier at the National Union Bank, 
testified that Mr. Borden came into the bank between quarter past nine and quarter to ten. But I would not swear to that. He, he stayed from five to ten minutes. I saw him talking to two gentlemen and Mr. Hart in front at my end of the room. Attorney Knowlton asked him if he was in the same building as Mr. Hart. Mr. Burrell answered, yes, sir. Mr. Burrell, when originally interviewed by Officer Medley before the hearing, stated, Andrew J. Borden came into the bank as near as we can place the time at about 10 o'clock. He went to the rear of the bank and looked in the rooms, probably for Mr. Hart, and finding no one, went out, remarking something about calling again. He did not call again. He was alone. Everett Cook was a cashier for the First National Bank. Andrew Borden was a director for the trust company affiliated with that bank. Mr. Cook testified that Mr. Borden entered the bank at quarter 10 and went away at five minutes to 10. He told Officer Medley that Mr. Borden deposited a check which was made payable to him by Troy Mills. While making the deposit, Mr. William Carr came in. They talked together for a few minutes and Mr. Borden left the bank. He was here. He was here not more than 10 minutes. While he was here, I noticed that he looked tired and sick. Knowing him so well, I could not help noticing he looked real sick. I did not speak to him about it because if I thought about it, I'm not speaking about it because if I thought he might be, he might consider none of my business. He was alone when he came and went away from the bank. John Mathers testified that Andrew picked up an old broken Yale shop lock. The above, okay, I don't know about that, just a photo. Sometimes the, the text on here is the same size as the caption, so it's hard to tell. All right, John Morris's timeline. John Morris left the Borden house at 8.45 on the morning of August 4th, 1892. He spoke with Andrew for a few moments in the side yard and then started away. Andrew, calling after him, come back to dinner, John. Okay, according to John's words to Officer Fleet on the afternoon of the murders, this was where he went when he left the house. Leaving Mr. Borden at the door, went to the post office, wrote a letter from there, went as far as 3rd Street on Bedford from 3rd to Pleasant Street, through Pleasant Street to number 4, way Boston Street, arriving there at 9.30 a.m. Saw relatives from the west. Remained at the house from 9.30 to 11.20 a.m. or thereabouts. Left, taking a horse car and stopped at the corner of Pleasant and 2nd Streets and to Mr. Borden's house at or near 12 o'clock. Saw a number of persons around the house and was told Mr. and Mrs. Borden was killed. That was the first I knew of their deaths. Parentheses. Officer Medley stated that John Morris told reporter Edwin Porter of the Daily Globe that first he knew of it, the murders, was when he was telephoned for when he was telephoned for at Emory's. Morris also told the New York Herald, August 7, 1992, that he went to the post office and several other places about town and finally to Daniel Emory's. During John Morris's preliminary hearing testimony two weeks after the murders, his story was improved upon. Morris, during his time with Andrew in the sitting room, that morning before he left for Emory's. We talked about some cattle I had. He, Andrew, was telling me the night before up at Emory's, I had a nephew and a niece from the West, and he told me where they lived 
and wanted me to go and see them. Then I went away. I came to the post office and got a car. I rode a coastal and when I and, and, and went up to Bedford Street, the third street, and went from there to Pleasant Street and up to Waybosset Street, number four, Bad Emory's. Attorney Knowlton, Attorney Knowlton, did you see relatives you went there to see? Morris. I saw one. The young man was out. I did not see him. Knowlton. What was the young what was the young lady's name? Morris. Annie Morris. She was indisposed while I was there. She was on the lounge part at the time. She is my brother's daughter. Knowlton. Did they ask you to stay to dinner? Morris. Yes, sir. I told them I had another engagement. Knowlton. That engagement was to dine with your brother. With your brother Andrew. Morris, yes, sir. Knowlton. Did you walk up? Morris. No, sir. Came on the streetcar. Got off at the got, got off at the second and walked up. Knowlton. When was the first you heard that Mr. Board was killed? Morris. When I went to the door. When I went into the door. I went yeah. I went around before I went into the house to a pear tree to get a couple of pears. When I came back, the servant girl met me at the door and asked if I had heard the news. I said no. She said Mr. and Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Borden were both murdered. A man named Sawyer stood there at the time. Milton. Were there people out in the street? Morris. I did not see them when I went in. Milton. You did not see any excitement in the yard or, or in the street? Parentheses. By noon, it was reported 400 to 500 people were in front of the house. Many running around the yard and going into the barn, in parentheses, Morse. Nothing to attract my attention at all. Officer Medley, to prove the truth or falsity of Mr. Morse's statements, went to the home of Mr. Emery at number, at, at number four, Waybossom Street, about a mile from the Borden's home. He spoke with, with, with Mrs. Emery. She said Mr. Morse did come there at 940 and left there at 1120 or thereabouts. That he did meet his nephew and niece. She also said Mr. Morris had not been to her house before in several years. She asked him to remain to dinner, but he declined, saying something about going to New Bedford, to which place they understood he was going after leaving the house. He left by the front door, but she does not know whether or not he took a streetcar. The Fall River Herald reported Officer Medley's interview with Mrs. Emery as well. A few other details are relayed. Mrs. Emery. I had several callers that day, one of whom was Mr. Morris. When asked how she fixed the time as 11.20 when Morris left her house, after some little hesitation, Mrs. Emery said that one of her family was sick and that Dr. Bourne was her physician. Dr. Bourne came in just, Dr. Bourne came in just, in just as Mr. Morris left. Did they meet? queried the officers. No, they did not meet. To Mrs. Emery. The niece entered the room at this time and collaborated on the information that Morris left at 1120, although they originally said 1130. Chapter 12. Thursday, August 4th, 1892. She was struck 18 times. All right, here we go, guys. Remember, if you are uncomfortable with this, just move on. There's other places you can. You, you can view and, and do all that and, and, and all that. So just 
don't ban me, okay? Because I'm just reading the book. Permission from everybody's been given. All right. If you like what you hear, double tap that screen. If you haven't followed already, please feel free to do so. Share. Share this thing. We're going to keep continuing it. Abby Borden found it difficult to concentrate on what she was doing. Straightening the disc chamber at least gave her nervous energy an outlet. The bed linens and the shams that went over the little pillows at the foot of the bed had been changed. John had laid atop the spread and put his feet with his dirty socks on the small pillows at the end of the bed. She replaced three dirty hand towels from the rack through the wash basin. John had used that morning, that John had used that morning, with fresh ones. She poured his dirty wash water into the slop pail and filled the basin with clean water from the pitcher. She would take the slop pail along with the soil towels to the cellar when she finished here. Then she would have to hurry and change to her street dress. The driver was picking her up at 10. Okay. She glanced at the small bedside clock. It was 9.15. Andrew's large blue handkerchief was put to use polishing the bric-a-brac on the dressing bureau and a large rectangular mirror. The cloth was almost in tatters, but the silk material made the glass shine. She next moved to the windows. Bridget's window washing did not include the private chambers. The girls were responsible for their own, and Abby took care of her in Andrew's room. Emma usually kept the guest room clean, as it was used primarily as the sister's sitting room for their friends. It also doubled as the sewing room. A sewing machine sat against the west wall, while a basket of notions rested on the, on, the, on the cane chair by the north window. A yardstick was propped up by the machine. Abby pushed aside the shutters that faced 2nd Street, taking one of John's used hand towels. She dipped it in to clean the clean wash water and scrubbed the glass. She repeated this on the other window facing the west, and then moved to the window overlooking the, the side yard of Mrs. Trishel's house. When she finished, she added the wet. Uh, of course, it did. Hang on. Okay, I just lost the eyes. Okay, when she finished, she added the wet towel to the other two laying on the washstand. Taking Andrew's silk handkerchief, she began to polish the window facing the street. Her breath was ragged. All the extra work and the heat of the second floor was taking a toll on her. She felt her extra pounds all the more on these humid summer days. The cheap calico dress clung to her like wet tissue paper. Lizzie picked up her pile of freshly folded clothes from the kitchen table and started for the stairs. She stopped in the dining room and removed her low-tie shoes. She could hear Abby moving about in the guest chamber in great heading steps. As she passed the front door, she checked the three locks. Everything was secure. Cradling the clothes in both arms, Lizzie climbed the steps in stocking feet. As she reached the curve in the stairs, she looked toward the open door of the guest room. Abby was swiping at the window glass, staring straight at yeah, staring straight ahead of her near the dressing bureau. Well, she was taking. Why was she taking so long? Lizzie thought angrily. She was supposed to be in her room, changing to go out. Abby didn't hear Lizzie in her bedroom and lay the clothes on the bed. Voices wafted into Lizzie's room from the open window facing the Kelly house to the south. She walked over to it and pulled back the lace curtain. Bridget was standing at the fence, laughing with Mary Doolin, the Kelly maid. 
She hasn't even begun to wash the windows, Mrs. Dodd panicked. Her timeline was falling apart. It will have to be now, she thought, her heart pounding. She couldn't swallow, and her head felt dizzy. She would have to kill her in the guest room, while Bridget was on the opposite side of the house. She couldn't wait any more. She glanced at her clock. It was 9.30. She pulled the shiny hatchet from the mattress and placed it between the layers of clean clothes. A linen handkerchief rested on the top, taking several deep gulps of air. Of air. <laughs> Sorry. She again tried to swallow, panic pushing bile up into her throat until she thought she would vomit. With a final deep breath, she walked out into the landing and into the guest room. A flash of blue swept across the dressing bureau mirror as Lizzie walked quickly across the room in her bedford cord dress. Abby didn't turn until Lizzie was standing directly behind her. I think I have one of your handkerchiefs, Lizzie said, her voice trembling. Abby was caught off guard. Lizzie was holding out the pile and wandering toward her. Careful not to spill the pile of clothes that rested in her hands. Abby hesitated, not recognizing the handkerchief that rested on top of the pile. Lizzie suddenly pulled the hatchet from the clothes, tossing them aside. They fluttered to the ground in a heap of near and in a heap near the sewing machine. Before the startled woman could cry out, Lizzie swung the hatchet and caught her stepmother on the left side of her face, near the back of her near the back by her ear. The wound hung open like a flap. Abby's look of shock as her eyes locked with her attackers, gave way to mind-numbing pain. She doubled over in an instinctual move to cover herself. A flash of motion came from the second floor bedroom window of Adelaide Churchill's house, directly across from the boards, and a stone's throw from where Lizzie stood. She quickly threw the small house shutters together in an effort to block the outside view into the room. It was suddenly much darker. She saw Abby place a hand on the wound, Days. Lizzie swung the hatchet into the air, her teeth set with hatred. The next two blows hit her stepmother atop her head, leaving small incisions in her scalp. Abby, now in full panic, whirled in a mindless attempt to flee. The only path not blocked by Lizzie was toward the bed. Again, the hatchet fell, this time finding its mark. The blade sliced through the calico and buried in the skin near the nape of Abby's neck. Going in, full, going in a full two inches between her shoulders, leaving a gash four inches wide, the entire width of the seal. The flesh spurted, drops. The flesh spurted, drops hitting the pillow shams on the left side of the bed. Cast off from the raised hatchet, flew through the air, a small drop landing atop Lizzie's white petticoat, lying on the floor a few feet away. Abby hit the floor with a resounding thud. The board shook beneath Lizzie's feet as she watched her victim fall face first on the floor of Russell's carpeting. The blue handkerchief flew from Abby's hand, landing near her head. Lizzie paused only a moment, her chest, her chest heaving. The rage she had held inside for five years exploded. It came rushing out in a flurry of attacks. The hatches swung through the air, sending droplets of blood into the top of the swollen bureau drawers, the marble base, the mop board and bed frame. Only a few drops shot forward onto the wall be before Abby's head. Straddling her enemy, Lizzie bent forward, her stocking feet hidden beneath her ruffled hem, and struck again and again 
at the exposed right side of her stepmother's head until the blade was hitting the brain and bone. She gripped the hatchet in both hands, using shorter strokes, and lost count of the strikes. Finally, her anger spent, and her forearms tired from wielding the hatchet. Lizzie straightened, trying desperately to catch her breath. A dark blur caught her eye off to the right. There was something long and brown lying on the pure-like counterpane. During one of the blows, Abby's fake braid of hair had caught on the blade and landed on the bedspread. She stood panting. In the soft shadows of the room, she stared down at the motionless form. The copper smell of blood filled the air, her breathing finally to slow. Finally began to slow. The room came into focus as her head cleared. A strange calm overcame her. She had done it. It was over. The original plan had been to kill Abby in her bedroom as she changed to go downstairs. It was only certainly Lizzie had awoken with sometime this morning before 10 o'clock. Abby would go to her bedroom to change her shabby calico for street dress. The bolt on the door separating their bedrooms had been pulled back. Everything was ready, but she had taken too long in the guest room, stopping to go down for the note, reminding Bridget about the windows. Perhaps this was better, Lizzie thought. There was no locked bedroom door from the landing. A madman would have to negotiate, like the one to Abby's room. This looked easier. An open door at the top of the front stair landing, a helpless old lady making a bed, her back turned. Lizzie crossed the wash basin and plunged the bloody hatchet into the fresh water. A red stain spread through the bowl. She rubbed it first with her hands, gliding them gently over the sharp blade and up and down the smooth hickory handle. She picked up one of the wet towels and scrubbed it, careful not to cut herself. The water was now deep crimson. There was a stubborn puddling of blood at the base of the helm. She would take it to the cellar and use the sink there. She dropped the bloody towel into the slot pail and grabbed another of John's soiled towels. The smell of death filled the room. It was an odd mixture of bodily fluids and the unmistakable odor of blood. There was nothing like the poor pigeon she had seen beheaded. An odd thought, an odd thought pressed up through the images of violence. Her father was a widower again. She paused to contemplate it. Bridget's laugh from outside rose, rose through Lizzie's open bedroom window across the hall, bringing her back to reality. For the first time, Lizzie looked into the oval mirror and a face speckled with blood, Abby's blood. She was surprised to see only a few, a few large drops. She scrubbed at her cheeks, nose, and forehead, and dabbed at the several droplets resting in her brown wavy hair. The back of her hands were covered with blood. She eased them into the crimson basin water and rubbed them. She could not see them beneath the bright red surface. Finally, she took the wet towel to them until they were clean. Her nails were kept short, and the blood beneath her edges came away when she scraped them. In her reflection, she saw that her bodice was covered with small teardrop-sized blood drops. Two or three larger blotches, blotches covered the small, dark figure adorning the front. Grabbing the last wet, last wet towel, she dipped it into the fresh water in the pitcher, avoiding the bloody wash basin. She rubbed at the crimson spots, at first gently, then with more vigor. She had soaked into the ribbed weave of the dress and would not come out. Lizzie held up her skirt and studied it. The old dull paint stain still rimmed the lower left side of the skirt, but she saw only a few drops of cast-off blood from the hatchet. 
all in all, it was far less blood than she expected. Bending low over the body and keeping the blows short, she served to keep the blood splattered to a minimum. She dropped the other two towels into the slot pail and poured the bloody basin water in with them, and then refilled the bowl with clean water from the pitcher. The morning he wretched, reached, I'm sorry, God, the morning he reached in through the half-closed shutters, amplifying the smell coming from the area between the bed and the bureau. Lizzie stepped to the window facing the street and looked down, looking for Bridget. She drew the still air into her lungs. Her pulse quickened. A cart of palm lilies was standing in front of her house. Mrs. Manley, Alice Russell's sister-in-law, and another woman were looking at the flowers and speaking to the peddler, whom Lizzie recognized as Mrs. Manley's nephew. The noise of the street filled the room. A strange thought flashed through her mind. Life is going on as usual. There goes a drummer, heading for the Daily News office. The miller's maid is outside cleaning windows, just like every other Thursday. And someone is yelling over at Hall's stables. Nothing has changed, except Mrs. Borden is dead. She looked down at the street, pregnant with people. How soon before they all knew? And then she saw him, there, standing boldly in the gateway on her side, was a young, on the side yard, was a young man with his arm resting upon the post waiting. Was he waiting for Abby? He was early. Lizzie ran to her room. She looked at her clock. It was 9.55. She heard the sound of scraping outside her window and peered out. Bridget was standing in the tall grass, pushing the long pole with the brush attached along the upper sitting room windows. She had obviously been talking with the Kelly maid for some time. Some time. Her thoughts suddenly changed to her father. He would be home at 11 o'clock to handle the business at rest or rest in the sitting room before noon. She knew her Uncle John was not expected back for it. She had overheard the entire plan last night and this morning. Still, she had made sure the triple locks were bolted on the front door. She paused for a moment, taking stock. Abby was dead. The farm deed was to be put in her name. Did she really need to kill her father, too? The Swansea deal would not go through now. She and Emma, she and Emma's inheritance were safe. Her father would be 70 next month, and the grave would claim him soon enough. She pictured bringing the hatchet blade down onto his head, and she froze. She couldn't do it. Poisoning was different. It gave one distance from the act of murder. But killing someone up close with their eyes looking at you, it shocked disbelief. As, as the woes fell, that was terrifying. She ju she'd just done it. Now that she knew what it felt like to sink the steel blade into someone's brain, she could not reach the place in her mind where she could do that to a man she had loved so much until she came along and manipulated him into taking money away from his own daughters. A thought suddenly struck her. When Abby doesn't show up at the bank this morning, her father will come looking for her. She didn't have as much time as she hoped. Now, the thoughts came flooding into her mind, as once again, she had to choose, change directions. If she wasn't going to kill her father, what would she do with the bloodstained dress? She could try and burn it in the stove, but Bridget could enter and smell it. A burned dress with a body... Hang on. A burned dress with a body upstairs... Might look suspicious, her thoughts raced. 
She would stick to her plan. She would slip the new dress over it, convince Bridget to go on some errands with her, and by the time her father came home, they would both have an alibi of being downtown when a maniac entered and killed Abby. She would remove the bed from Cora's dress somehow while they were out and dispose of it. That would work. Lizzie ran to the dress closet at the end of the hall, unlocked it, and selected the new light blue calico pigeon blouse waist and skirt she had made in New Bedford the week before. It was her longest dress, with loose bodice and inexpensive, and inexpensive. One, she wouldn't care about damp blood getting on, on it from the inside. Hurrying back to her room, she tried shoving her arms into the sleeves of calico blouse waist. The large button sleeves on the bed for cord bunched into the tight fabric and refused to budge. Lizzie tugged on the sleeves, trying to force the outer blouse to cover the other. As she pulled on the tight forearms, a button loop snapped. Angrily, she pulled off the blue calico and struggled with an answer. The sleeves of the bed for cord would have to go. Without a thought as to the woman lying on the floor in a pool of blood, Lizzie dashed into the guest room and picked up the sewing box and the cane chair and made three feet from Abby's shoes. She hurried back to her room and removed the bed for cord blouse, taking scissors from the sewing box she cut. She cut away the, the, the large sleeves of the old dress. Sitting on the lounge, she hurriedly basted the small button loop on the calico back into place. Parentheses. During Lizzie's own testimony at the coroner's inquest, she stated, I had only been upstairs just long enough to take the clothes up and baste the little loop on the sleeve. Okay. She put the Bedford cord blouse back on, sleeveless this time, and hooked the front. Standing, she pulled the light, light blue dress with the dark figure over the old blouse and hooked it as well. It was a tight fit. The area around the waist bulged slightly. She unhooked the bottom of the top blouse to give it some space. Lizzie stepped into the calico skirt and pulled it up way over the stained blood. While hooking it in the back, she looked down in dismay. The narrow ruffle the Bedford cord showed. She sat on the lounge and, taking the scissors, cut away the ruffle of the seam, half cutting and half tearing it, as she hurried to finish. Parentheses. Mrs. Raymond, the dressmaker, stated her testimony that the Bedford cord was two inches longer than Lizzie's other dresses. She also said its large sleeves would not fit beneath another dress. End of parentheses. She looked about her for she looked about her for a place to hide the sleeves and ruffle scraps. Emma's room. If she needed to, she could lock that door and say Emma locked it when she left perf when she left perfect. Offers Doherty and Molly and Molly found Emma's door open on their first pass through the house. It was found locked later that day. Lizzie entered her sister's room and opened her small closet door. There were some spare pillows and a blanket on the shelf. Taking down a small pillow, Lizzie stuffed the fabric scraps into the sham and replaced it on the shelf. She closed Emma's bedroom door. All right, guys, I know I was kind of hoping to get through both murders today, but uh, we're out of time. We've been on for over an hour. So that's going to do it What's for Lizzie Borden. Uh, we will not revisit Lizzie Borden until after the new year. All right? Because like I said, next week we're shifting back into in in reading ghostly tales of, for, for the holidays. So that's going to do it. I want to thank everybody for being here today. I know everybody's busy, busy, busy preparing for Thanksgiving. Everybody's in a rush. And uh, I really appreciate I really appreciate you guys coming. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, 
share it with five of your enemies. It was just equal opportunity. Like I said, we're just trying to build up, you know, build up what we're doing here on on TikTok and and, and YouTube and Facebook and all those other places. Okay. Anyway, I want to thank you all. I am going to say goodbye now, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And see you, TikTok. All right, over here on Facebook, uh, same thing. I hope to see you guys, um, you know, after the first year to finish off this book. And I'm glad you came tonight. See you next week. And we're going to be reading um, Christmas tales, scary Christmas tales. So that's going to start next Sunday, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And uh, hopefully uh, you guys have a great Thanksgiving. And I'll, Oh, yes, and tomorrow night, and I forgot to do that on TikTok. Oops. Tomorrow night, Nancy Mass will be with us, and we're going to be talking about how people's personalities tend to change after after a, a hard sickness or after a death. So we're going to have that discussion tomorrow night. Okay, I'll see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening.